If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And I love it when we have a return guest because that means that it is someone who you as listeners really liked, got a lot of great information from, and we thought we should have another conversation on a different topic. And so this week, we are going to be welcoming back Chantel Chambliss. And you may remember her from episode 156, where we spoke with her about fundraising for sustainability. And today, we're going to be talking about everything you need to know to recruit, train, and keep volunteer solicitors motivated. Before I introduce Chantel, though, there's one thing that I want to make sure that you know about. Listeners, if everything has gone as planned, we are one week out from our January webinar, everything you wanted to know about strategic planning, but were afraid to ask. This is our single most popular webinar. We offer this webinar at this point, I think like three times a year, and we always, always get a good turnout. So if in your organization, you're thinking, hmm, maybe 2022 is the year for us to be doing strategic planning, you should go up to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and register for the webinar. And I'll share with you, even if you're not able to attend on the date that's listed, don't worry about it. If you register but are not able to attend, we will send the recording of the webinar to you. And now, listeners, allow me to introduce Chantel Chambliss to you. As I mentioned, she came on back in 2020. I think she came on in about April or May of 2020. And, you know, we talked fundraising. And fundraising is an evergreen topic in the nonprofit sector. We all, as organizations, feel like we need more money. And we all feel like we need to figure out better ways to ask for money. And making that ask, that actual solicitation, is essential for every single nonprofit. If you want to keep your programs running, if you want to keep your administrative backbone and infrastructure strong and sustainable, you have got to be out there asking for money. 
And Dr. Chantel Chambliss is a self-described sustainability junkie when it comes to fundraising. And so, again, today she's going to be coming in and sharing with us some tips and ideas on ways that you can support your team of solicitors as they prepare for and conduct those perfect asks that raise money. Hey, Chantel, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dolph, thank you so much for having me back. I'm so happy to be here talking with you again. Last time was such a, we had a great time. So I'm really looking forward to it. Same here. And I'm hoping today we could start, I know we're going to be talking about how to recruit, train, and motivate those volunteer solicitors. But I'm hoping we can actually start with the origin story of your consulting practice, because I think it's it's such an important story. And while maybe slightly off topic, I think it's important for our listeners to hear it, because sometimes we all need to do that check-in. So I actually, you know, start, I came into the nonprofit sector as a founder. Like, that was my first venture into the nonprofit realm. It's been 12 years. It's hard to believe it's been that long since I'm only like 21. But (laughs) it's been 12 years ago, I... I literally just went to look to volunteer and ended up starting a whole nonprofit because the opportunity wasn't readily available. And in that startup, I had been a business consultant prior to that. I had already had a consultancy and was helping small businesses with things like HR compliance and systems and things of that nature. So when I took this venture into the nonprofit sector, I just realized that there was no one around to really help the newbies, the people who had no clue. Every class, every seminar that I went to was so high level. And I'm like, I, I'm not, I can't, I'm not there yet. I'm still trying to figure out what form is what form and, you know, what, how do I file my taxes? And so as I began, you know, I'm a researcher by nature. And so I began to research and build my knowledge base and kind of, you know, trudged my way through those first couple of years. And then all of a sudden, like the influx of people going, well, I saw that you did it. How do I do it? And at that point, I kind of pivoted my small business consultancy to focus on nonprofits in that zero to five year mark and making things just really easy to digest and not very high level and not very, um, you know, technical. I wanted to create products and services that were functional for people who really wanted to serve their community and really wanted to create impact, but didn't have a degree in running a nonprofit. Um, And so from there, nonprofitability was born. And like you said, I'm a self-described sustainability junkie. Um, So the name nonprofitability is a play on that, my goal is to create profitable nonprofits that are sustainable, that can stand the test of time, and of course, create massive impact in their communities. Part of what I find really interesting about that story is, and I know I do this sometimes when I'm doing trainings as well, sometimes as the trainer, we take for granted that people already have a baseline of knowledge, and we kind of take for granted that people know. of what we know. And so we started that 25% mark. But if you don't have that initial 25%, wow, you're kind of just lost if you try to pick it up at 25. Yeah. Like you said, we go in thinking that, well, if someone showed up in this class, they kind of already know some stuff. It's not like college. I'm a college professor. When my kids come into my course, I know that they were required to take courses that gave them knowledge to succeed here. It's not like that in the real world. 
people can have the desire to start a nonprofit, to work in the nonprofit sector and have has never done that before. And there's no course, there's no prerequisite, right? You just wake up one morning and go, I really want to do this thing. I'm really passionate about this cause and I want to do something about it. But that doesn't mean that you you know, have a baseline of knowledge where you know what 990s are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, what does 501c3 versus 5014, whatever, (laughs) what that means, right? And so, yeah, we really have to understand that in this sector, most of the people coming in the door, are they have a clean slate. They have no previous knowledge. They have no knowledge base. What they really care about is creating change. And we have to build from there and not make it so difficult to do so. Absolutely. And I am hoping as we start to talk about recruiting, training, and motivating those volunteer solicitors, I am hoping maybe we start at that really basic level. So, you know, we kind of make the assumption you're an organization in your first five years, and maybe you've never recruited a volunteer solicitor before. So let's just start with that recruitment piece. You're a fairly new nonprofit organization, maybe dressed for success in their first five years. How do you go about identifying and recruiting people who are going to be good solicitors? So the one thing that I realized helped me be successful in those first couple of years of recruiting was I immediately casted my gaze outside of my network. And it sounds crazy. People always go start with the people closest to you. Well, one thing I've learned, especially in the volunteer capacity, is a person has to volunteer because they are passionate about the cause, the mission, right? And so what typically happens when we look inside of our personal networks, our friends and our family, we're finding people who are passionate about us. But they're not really, they don't really know much about the mission. They're not really passionate about the cause. They're passionate about us. And so that works well for a while until it's time to do some like really hard work, right? Until it's time to put boots on the ground. Then it's like, wait, I, you know, I just wanted to help you out a little bit, but I'm not, I don't want to go do that. And so the very first thing that I did personally was, this is going to date me. I posted an ad on Craigslist. Okay. I I will say, yeah, that does. I can remember times like that too. So, but that dates both of us. <laughs> I posted, I literally um, reserved like a room at a library. I created a PowerPoint presentation about the organization. And then I held an interest meeting. Um, and I put the ad on Craigslist and was like, if you are passionate about women's empowerment and financial literacy and all of these things, join me for an information session. We're looking for volunteers to join committees and things like that. And I, these people showed up and I gave this PowerPoint presentation and I had a process for them to sign up and, you know, be on the development committee or to be, um, we used to do phone banks back then. Oh my gosh, I'm so dating myself, right? (laughs) We used to do phone banking where we would just sit and call potential donors. Um, And so I casted my net outside of my network because the number one thing to office, are they passionate about the mission? If they're only there to lend you personally a helping hand, when it's really time to get you know down and dirty, they're going to second guess. But when someone is passionate about the mission, they're going to, you know, they're going to get out there in the mud and, and go. 
I find your perspective on that to be really accurate because when we're relying on our friends and family, we can count on them once, twice, or three times. But at some point, we wear out our welcome, and they th- and they say, "Okay, you know, I've done this eight times for you now, and this is not where my passion lies." So I gotta I gotta back up though, and I have to ask you. So you posted this ad on Craigslist, and how many people showed up in that library room for your PowerPoint presentation? I think in the first one it was maybe eight people. Oh and I did wow! It several times. Yeah. Yeah. In the very first one, it was eight. I will never forget. It was seven women and one man. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I was like, these people are on Craigslist. It was like I had a couple of executives and like really wow. professional people. And I'm like, what are these people doing on Craigslist? <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm like, wow. And I mean, really, I can never. If I could go back and find them all. I could never thank them enough for the work that they did. They were just so interested. Um, some of them had heard Dress for Success is an international brand. So I did have some brand recognition. Um, so some of them had heard about Dress for Success, but hadn't seen it happening in our area. So they were just really interested, like, whoa. Um, and then some people were looking for volunteer opportunities the same way I was looking when I started Dress for Success. And so it just, you know... It, it worked out so well. It was almost, almost like kismet. I, I could not believe it. So let's fast forward. It's now 2021. I think it might be not the best approach to put an ad on Craigslist. I don't know if Craigslist is even still around, but it probably is. It's probably not the best approach, though. So, like, what do you recommend now? Is it is it like the ad on Meetup or on Facebook event? Or, like, what do you recommend now? So what, I'm, what I recommend to my clients now is LinkedIn. Because, you know, LinkedIn... Every social media platform has its purpose. Um, Facebook is kind of where we are. We're hanging out with our friends. But when we get over to LinkedIn, that's like the boardroom, right? It's where we are looking for professional opportunities, where we're learning more about companies, um, not just like their ads that they're running on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. We are really learning about these organizations and what they need and who they're looking for. LinkedIn Chantel, I totally see that. I will share with you when we do our webinars and we do we do pretty frequent webinars at this point. We typically create um, obviously we have the sign up at our website, but we create an event in Facebook and we create an event in LinkedIn. And LinkedIn drives significantly more traffic to our webinars than Facebook does. And and I don't mean double, I mean like 10x. It's really interesting to see that. So I agree with you, but tell me more about why LinkedIn is such a good platform when you're out looking for volunteers. So, you know, the thing about LinkedIn is that people are going there to take care of business. That's why when that's why the webinar numbers are so much higher there, right? When we're on Facebook, it's kind of like when we go to the break room at work. We are going there to like get a soda, chill out, see what's happening, see what happened in the news today. We aren't really thinking about work and and business. But when we go over to LinkedIn, you're like walking into the boardroom, like, okay, I'm here. I'm here to work. Let me learn about what companies are doing what and what companies needs this and what company is offering this. And so you're there to conduct business. And so I, you know, I have to tell, especially new organizations who are in those early stages, if you want to conduct business, you want to move away from the water cooler and you want to go over to the boardroom. So you want to move into LinkedIn 
and really get to know other community, potential community partners. Um, you want to know who's looking for volunteer opportunities. People don't post that on Facebook. If you went through every Facebook friends profile right now, you'd never see someone say, hey, I'm looking to be a volunteer solicitor. But they will do that on LinkedIn. What what nonprofits need volunteer solicitors? I'm really interested in helping a nonprofit raise money. Um, so LinkedIn, yeah, LinkedIn is just the place where we go to get serious, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting. I I joke with people because people ask me what social media I'm on, and I actually say I'm a power user on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn much more than I'm on Facebook. Facebook, as you say, it's kind of it might be a Saturday afternoon. I'm like, oh, let me see what my friends have done this week. And I'll pull up Facebook and I'll see what my friends have done this week. But but for me, LinkedIn, I'm, I'm not on it every day, but I'm probably on it for maybe even five times a week. So I, I, I'm in full alignment and agree with you on that. But I've got, I've got this next really important question that I think a lot of our, our listeners also have. So you've created a, a LinkedIn event or, you know, eight or a dozen years ago, you did a Craigslist meetup event and you've got eight or nine or 10 people that show up and they're all excited and they are all like, oh yeah, I'm, I want to volunteer for this committee or that committee. How do you identify among those, those folks that are going to be great solicitors? Because I'd be willing to bet everyone that shows up isn't showing up thinking, I want to raise money. Um, it's amazing to me where you that you can be really clear, and this is where people get frustrated. You can be really clear about what you're looking for and people will still show up and go, oh no, that's not what I want to do. <laughs> I'm like, but that's why I invited you here. And so I'll say this, if you do interest meetings or meetups or anything like that, there should be some place where you are taking information in. Me, I had like a, basically an application where you told me what your skill sets were, what your previous jobs were, what your current job was. It wasn't just we all sat around and like sip coffee and, and talked about the organization, I have a saying that says recruit like it pays. And that's specifically for my nonprofit people and nonprofits, because we tend to think we're asking volunteers to do us a favor. What we're really, they're really asking us to do a favor, right? It's the opposite. And so whenever I'm in any type of recruiting mode, board members, volunteers, solicitors, committee members, the rec- the process is like a job recruitment process. I want an application with some pertinent information. I want to have one-on-one conversations. I want to have group conversations so I can get to know you and see what your skill sets are and see them in action. And so one thing I'll say is this, don't just bring people in and give them information. You take in information as well. What is their current role? If they have never, ever, 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 ever solicited anything, right, or ever sold anything, and you may have to dig a little bit to see if they have some soft skills that will make them a good solicitor, or you have to say, well, maybe you'll be better here. Maybe this is a great volunteer to help manage the donor database, right? Maybe they have some amazing administrative skills Um, or maybe they're like a CPA and they can really, really help with auditing and bookkeeping because people hear finances and or or money and they think all different things. And then you're out of that eight. You probably have like two really good solicitors. Right. And you have to identify them. But you can't if you don't gather any information 
on them. If you just bring them in a room and talk to them, you're not going to know until they like go completely flub a solicitation. Right? <laughs> so you want to know before that you want to gather information. You want to know what their current jobs are. You want to know um, previous volunteer experiences. Have they ever asked anyone for money? Have they ever solicited before? You have to gather information. So I always tell people recruit like it pays, create a formal process. You want to keep it light and comfortable and you don't want people to feel like they're like you know interviewing for the supreme court but you also need to gather some really important information and so there has to be a a process in place for you to do so really think that's such a good point and that mantra recruit volunteers like it pays what a really good mantra oftentimes Chantel, when i'm doing board development work i'll talk with boards about really strengthening the recruitment process in addition to better understanding and explaining what the expectations are. And when we start to talk about a strength in recruitment process, that also means there's more steps in the recruitment process and you're really kind of testing for commitment. And I'll often have the board push back and say, well, we're going to have such a hard time getting board members. And I'm like, yes, you will. But the board members you get are going to be committed and you're not going to have a third to half of your board wash out in their first year every single time. You are so right. I've had so many people, but like you said, when we're doing board development and board recruitment, they're like, no one's going to want to do this. Good. Because the people who want to do it are the ones that you want. Listen, when you are applying for anything, even when we're just like applying for a car, right? Let's, let's We're going to the car dealership and we want to get a car. You want to know the reason why we're all there five or six hours? Because they are trying to make sure that you are serious about paying this money, right? If you sit here and you provide me all of your verification and all of your paycheck stubs and you're giving me references and I can call them, they know now that you're serious or at least you're, you're making a the college effort or college try to pay back this loan. But if you go in and you say, hey, I want that car. And they're like, well, fill out this paperwork. And you're like, I don't know, fill out that paperwork. They know you're not serious. And so you have to formalize this process so that one, you're weeding out people who are not serious, that you're gathering information so that you can put people in a place where they can thrive in their skill set. And, you know, and it's really not based on what their current position is. I have people who are like social workers who are the best solicitors I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) Like these people can go like ask for a million dollars in the first conversation. I'm like, whoa. And And their day jobs are social workers. But they just have some really amazing soft skills and transferable skills that just translate really well into solicitation. Um, But we have to get nonprofit leaders past the point of, I think we've like uh, taken on this, uh, I don't even know what to call it, but we always feel like we're begging. You feel like you're begging for money. You're begging for volunteers. You're begging for staff to work for less than what they may make somewhere else. And so then we always try to like diminish the process because we don't want to feel like a burden. No, the process needs to be really formal um, and really effective so that we can get what we need in the end. Right. So let's say you've had eight people who want to volunteer. You've gotten uh, six people volunteering in great roles that you really need help in, bookkeeping, CRM, tabling at outreach, whatever, and you have two people, maybe one person with a sales background and, and a social worker with superpowers. And the reason, by the way, the reason I say that is 
so social workers have some amazing superpowers that they've gotten through their training and also, frankly, through on-the-job training. And we often uh, we often don't acknowledge what those superpowers are. And being able to relate to others, which is a big part of fundraising, that's a superpower. So let's say you now have someone in sales and you've got a social worker, and you now need to train them to solicit for your organization. How do you do that training? So the first thing I that I do is make sure we have like a history lesson. I think this is a missed opportunity in many places is that we tell people what we need, but we don't tell them where we've been. And so even though Dress for Success has been around since the late 90s, we go back to the history and we talk, and we talk about milestones. We really give a really in-depth history lesson because when you're asking people for money, especially when you get to asking for the big bucks, they want to know that you've been successful before, right? And so we, we make sure that our solicitors know all of those milestones, all of those achievements, all of those accomplishments. And then we talk about future state. I think volunteers come in and we see them as temporary, which I, hasn't been the case for me. I have volunteers who've been around since like we opened our doors and they won't and they just we can't pay them to leave. Right. <laughs> but, um we make sure that they are always in the know about where we're going next as well. No solicitor can have a valuable conversation on your behalf if they don't know the past, the present, and the future. We can't just give them like some donor details and go, hey, go ask this person for money because this is what our profile says about them. They really need to know the past, present, and future of the organization. They need to know where you've been, where you are, and where you're going so that they can have really insightful conversations with your donors. Um, and so we start with that history lesson. It's it's always where I start. Um, and then, of course, there's a bunch of on-the-job training, right? Don't ever send anyone to have conversations about your organization on your behalf by themselves the first time. Even if you get a check, to me, it still isn't successful. <laughs> even, if you, even if you get the donation, it still wasn't a success because there's no one there to support this person in this initial conversation to help fill information gaps. So if you got a check, you may have may have would have gotten a bigger one if someone with that institutional knowledge was there to support. No one should be just going out. I know we're all limited on staff and time and all of those things, but no one should be going it alone. And so this is yeah, this is a training round of, you know. On-the-job training is super important here, and not just kind of getting bodies and sending them out into the field. One of the things that also makes me think of, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but oftentimes when I'm onboarding a new solicitor, I will actually, as part of that on-the-job training, ask them to start with really some lower-end donors, so $100 donors. Like, you don't start, if for your organization, $1,000 is a major gift, you don't start with $500 donors and ask them for 1000 You start with $100 donors, just so people start to get their talk tracks in their head and they get better at it. And then, you know, once they're used to telling that story, here's where we've been and here's where we're going and here's why we need your support. You know, then it's time to, you know, bust out and ask those $500 donors for $1,000 or those $1,000 donors for, you know, 5000 So what I've learned is that your lower level donors are usually your most engaged. I don't, it's like magic. Your $25 to $500 donors are the people who want to know everything. They are the people who are waiting for your newsletter to drop into their box, right? They are the most engaged, usually because when they're giving at a lower level, it means that their money has more personal value to them. So if I can 
only give $100, that $100 is very valuable to me because I may not have millions in the bank, right? So their money is so much more valuable to them personally, so they want to see it in action. Your $10,000 donors who can just stroke a $10,000 check, the money is still very valuable to them, but they know that they don't have to see it in action, if that makes sense. They know, you know, they understand the tax benefits to them. They know, okay, I'm covering the cost of this. So, and I trust you to go do it. And they, they kind of stroke your check and they're like, okay, I'm, I'm okay now. Your person given a hundred dollars, that money is very valuable to them. Because when someone gives at that level, you know that they really want to give and they want to support, but they can't stroke $10,000 checks at the moment. And so those are the people who are the most engaged. And so those are where you're going to have your best conversations. So absolutely start there. Your volunteer solicitor should be starting with your $50 to $500 donors because they're going to have the best conversation. They're going to get the most insight. And you know, with strategic planning, when we're talking to our external stakeholders, we're including those donors because those are the donors that are going to respond to surveys. Yeah, Those are the donors that are going to show up for focus groups because they want to know that their money has an impact. Completely true. Those $100 donors are really committed donors. I believe, though, there's one set of donors that are even more committed. And those are your sustaining or recurring donors. Those, those folks that say, yeah, you know, charge my credit card every month or every quarter because like they believe enough that like they, they want to see it on their credit card statement every single month. And to, to me, I think there's two big game changers, maybe even three with those. The first is if you can get someone to go from $10 a month to $15 a month, not actually really all that big of a jump for most people, but you're getting someone to go from a $120 donor to $180 donor, 50%. It's kind of like getting your $10,000 donor to go to 15. That's a big deal. Like that's a big, big deal. But the other thing I just have to reflect on, uh, now I'm going to show my age. Over, over two decades ago when I was a development director, we had an amazing program that we called $5 for food and fuel. And essentially we asked people to give $5 a month and we we put all of that money, we took none of it for overhead because it's only five bucks. We put all of that money into the, the larger emergency assistance fund to help people with food and with fuel. And the reason I'm saying I'm showing my age is, you know, two decades ago, most people were not doing online giving. We were still, you know, we were still kind of, most of us were not even doing online shopping over two decades ago. You know, we, we were scared about putting our credit card. It's, it's laughable now. We were scared about putting our credit card information online. But the vast majority of our $5 for food and fuel donors, and some people did more than five. Some would do 10 or would do 20. But the vast majority of our donors were older people. And I, you could tell that because they would mail in a check every month and you could tell by the handwriting. So, you know, sometimes as, as you get into your 70s and 80s, your handwriting starts to get really kind of squiggly. And so you could tell that, you know, that this was the squiggly handwriting of an octogenarian. And to me, part of the powerful thing around that is these people were really committed. And while, yeah, they weren't going to stroke a $10,000 check, for someone who'd been a sustaining donor for years, we could go to them and have a conversation about their estate plan. And while they might not leave us $100,000 in their estate, they might actually leave us five or 10,000 because you know they owned a house and they had some savings and that kind of thing. And so they would actually put us in their will in a way that was significant. I have to tell nonprofit leaders 
there is no such thing as set it and forget it in this industry. Now, I can pay a gym membership for three years and never, ever go and never miss it. But if one of my recurring donations doesn't hit my statement, I'm like, what? what's going on? Because it's it's more impactful. And so when people set those recurring donations, it's because every month they want to they want confirmation that they are contributing to this mission. No one cares about their gym membership if they're not like really working. I haven't seen the gym in two years. <laughs> and but they still get their $13 every month, right? And if I and if I don't, and then like during COVID, they didn't charge me for a couple of months. I never even noticed. <laughs> I never even noticed that they didn't charge me. But if one of my recurring donations didn't go through, one, I want to know everything is okay with this cause that I'm passionate about. Are you guys okay? Are your systems down? What's happening? Are you still delivering services? It's a much, there's no such thing as set it and forget it over here. So you're absolutely right off. Those are the people who are like in it for the long haul. And I will also say, while you can't budget for them, I have seen organizations that have used um, recurring donors and other opportunities to really engage in estate planning with their strongest supporters, where almost, when, when I look at their financials, almost every year they have six figures of bequests coming in. And again, you can't really budget for it because, you know, you don't, you never know who's going to die and you never know they're going to leave you a million or a hundred thousand or one thousand. But literally, like when I look at the bequest line items of some organizations, like, wow, they are reliably bringing in, you know, between two or three hundred thousand and a million dollars every year in bequests. Oh, Yeah. And I sit on the board for an organization who's just like that. Like I'm always, when we see the financial reports, I'm always like, whoa, of the people who have left them in their will. And I realize, and I, when I reflect on it, we typically have conversations about how long this person's been a donor. And usually they're like a $25 or $50 donor for like 20 years. And then they die and they leave $25,000, $35,000 in their will. It's because, you know, when someone is passionate about what you do, and they don't have the means to help you in major ways when they're living. It's just like we want to leave something for our children. They they take these organizations on as a member of their family, and they're like, "When I'm gone, you are. I'm, I want to do something major for you so that I can leave a legacy, that so that I can leave a lasting impact." So absolutely, don't you know? Don't ever discount. My five dollar donors are just as important to me as my five thousand dollar donors. So, so now let's talk about keeping your volunteer solicitors motivated. So you've, you've recruited them, you've trained them, you've given the, them both the history and the on-the-job training. They're doing a great job. They're knocking it home with your $100 donors, with your $1,000 donors, with your recurring donors. How do you keep them motivated so that they're not just doing it for a month and saying, okay, well, I've done it and now I'm done because that, that was a lot of work? Listen, we are all human beings and we all love two things, competition and recognition. And so, you know, we find it really fun to make it visible. Is there a chart in the office where you can see who's raising the most money? It's amazing how people see this little chart. They're like, oh, she's not going to beat me. Let me go make some calls, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then recognition. When they hit a milestone, milestones are so important in every asset of team building, right? When they hit a milestone, do we have a pizza party, you know, we're not going to go spend all the money we just raised. We're not all going to fly out to Dubai, right? But can we, can we have a pizza party? Can we do a wine tasting? Um, 
are they recognized at your annual fundraiser as the person? Because it's not about, well, this person went and raised the most money. Well, how we typically frame it is this person is so passionate about this cause. Hear from them why they take their time to volunteer and go out and to raise funds. It's really about, you know, showing how impactful this person is to the mission. So competition and recognition. You want to keep people engaged, put them against others, especially friends. Oh, I love when we have a group of friends um, that come and say, hey, especially when we used the phone bank. Oh, it was hilarious. They're like trying to see who can, you know, get to have the longest conversation, who what donor would tell them the most personal mm-hmm. information. They're like sharing notes. Oh, I... Well, you know, or if you talked to this donor last month and then I talked to him this month, but I got him to increase his donation. Oh, it's it's hilarious to watch. And then, of course, to recognize them for their hard work, um, putting milestones out there and going, we really need five thousand dollars this month. Who's going to get us there the quickest? Right. Um, and then recognizing them for their hard work at an annual fundraiser with, you know, small mementos or tokens, a a, a pin, mm-hmm. a pizza party, a gift card, something very small to let them know you appreciate their hard work. Um, like I said, we're human beings and we all do need that recognition. I have often been surprised at how motivational even the relatively smallest amount of recognition is like a lapel pin. You know, some of us are not that excited about a lapel pin, but there are there are groups of people who they get a lapel pin and they're going to wear it with pride to every one of your events. They're going to wear it. They're going to be like, yep, look, I, I, you know, because they'll know people are going to see the lapel pin and think, oh, this person is special in the organization. You know, Dom, I really, I guess as it came with age, when I was younger, when I first started this organization, I was like in my late 20s. And the lapel pin, I was so confused by it. I'm like, these people love yeah. lapel pins. It's amazing to me. But now I'm like, okay, who's getting a lapel pin this year? Because <laughs> they love it. The other thing that I love about the lapel pin, and now I'm showing my age, because I do remember I do remember two decades ago being surprised how motivational it is. The other thing I love about the lapel pin is when I wear one, it's my opportunity to evangelize for the organization. And so, for example, when I wear my Rotary lapel pin, A, I know other people who are Rotarians are going to go, oh, you're a Rotarian too. What club? And I'm going to have an affinity. But I also know there's going to be some other subset of people that will say to me, you know, I've often thought about joining Rotary, but I don't know anything about it. Tell me more. And then, you know, now now I've got my claws into them and I'm able to, to really tell them all the great things about Rotary and why I love being Rotarian. So it's interesting because like I think that's the other power of the lapel pin is it allows you to kind of quietly invite people to have conversations with you. Yeah, it is definitely a conversation starter. That and t-shirts. T-shirts with like some mm-hmm. quote that represents the organization and people want to know, what does that mean? And it's an amazing conversation starter. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Well, Chantel, you know, we have this off the map question. You've been on the podcast before, so you know we have an off the map question. And I think I've got a good one for you. So I know that you travel a good little bit. As an example, you're, you're based in Virginia, I think, but right now you're, you and I are talking while you're in New Orleans. So I know you travel a good bit. And I also know that you love Korean food. So my question for you is, what is the best Korean restaurant outside of Korea? The best Korean restaurant outside of Korea is Wan Joe in New York City. Um, it's just a little off of Herald Square, 
the best Korean barbecue you will ever have in your entire life. I've literally taken trips to New York just wow. <laughs> I mean, I'll catch a show or shop or something while I'm there, but that is like the goal of the trip is, you know, I've had great Korean barbecue all across the country, but that that place is yet to be topped. Wow, that that's good to know. I'm in and out of New York for work almost every year at some point, so I'm going to put that. I, I keep a list of restaurants and cities, like, oh, if I'm in this city, I need to check out that restaurant. So I'm going to add that to my New York restaurant list. It's one block over from the Macy's in Herald Square. Thank you for the tip. And listeners, if you love Korean barbecue and you happen to be in New York, you also should check it out. Um, this is one of the things that I love is being able to source um, source interesting restaurants. So so that, you know, because at some point we all travel for work, even if it's just a conference or whatever at some point. And, it's, and I know things have been shut down for a while, but at some point we're all going to travel again. And so, you know, just what a great thing to, to get tips from folks like you. First of all, Chantel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And... I definitely need to make sure that every listener knows how they can reach out to you. And so your URL is drchantelchambliss.com. We are also going to post that at our website, successfulnonprofits.com in the show notes. If that Korean barbecue restaurant in New York has a website, we might actually post that URL as well, just because that way it'll always be my reminder. But like, wait, wait, I didn't get it on the list. Where is it? But so when you go to Chantel's website. There's a couple of things that I want to make sure you do. The biggest one is I want to make sure that you check out her new book, The Nonprofit Factor. It is on the website. You can order it. Um, and it's The Nonprof, and then there's a dash, capital I-T, The Nonprofit Factor. Please make sure you check that out. Hey, Chantel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Dolph. It's always such a great time. Listeners, you know, if for some reason you cannot write down the URL or you really want to find out more about that restaurant, you can always go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. We're going to include all of that in the show notes. And there are two takeaways that I am taking from my conversation with Chantel today. And I'm actually going to take these and hopefully she won't be too upset about this. I'm going to, I'm going to start to put them in my own lexicon and start using them. And I agree with them, and to a great extent, I have. I, it, they are things that I have been doing, but I've not thought about it in such a pithy way. And that very first one is recruit like it pays. Love that. So yeah, when we're talking about volunteers, recruit like it pays. And my second really big takeaway is motivate through competition and recognition. Again. I know that, and typically when I think about volunteer motivation, those are the things I think about, but it's a really pithy way to think about it. So by remembering those, I'm going to be even more effective. And listeners, if you liked this episode, there's a couple more that I think you should definitely check out. The first is the last episode we did with Chantel, episode 156, Fundraising for Sustainability. And then I also think you should check out Monthly Giving, which is episode 95. We touched on it some in this episode, but if you want to know more about Monthly Giving, and it is the sleeping giant, if you want a recurring stream of revenue and a great pipeline to plan giving, Monthly Giving is where it's at. So make sure you check out episode 95 with Erica Wasdorp. And finally, listeners, before I let you go, if you've made it this far, because you know we're wrapping up the episode, don't forget that we are one week out 
from our webinar, everything you wanted to know about strategic planning but were afraid to ask. If you are thinking you might want to do strategic planning this year, you're going to get great actionable information. Go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and register for the webinar. That, listeners, is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And, you know, I got to say this at the end of every single episode. And when I say I have to, I mean the lawyers literally make me say it. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. And neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Which is not surprising because I'm not an accountant or an attorney. This episode, and really every episode of the podcast, is for informational purposes only. And it should never be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. And, you know, sometimes I jokingly say, really, there's no podcast that you should be getting your tax, legal, and accounting advice from in the same way that you should not just talk to people on the street corner and say, hey, I have an accounting question for you, or I have a legal question for you. You know, it's just not a great idea. So if you find yourself in need of tax, legal, or accounting advice, and you're not sure who to reach out to, feel free to contact me. This actually happened recently. Someone in Phoenix reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we really need a pro bono attorney, and we we don't know any firms. We don't know how to maybe get one. And I was able to link that person with the Bar Association in Phoenix, which actually links nonprofits with pro bono attorneys. So when I say reach out to me, I'm serious. I might be able to help you find the right person. So if you're not sure who to approach, reach out. 